Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the New Testament book of Galatians. It is page um, 823 in the church Bibles. We're going to begin reading in chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, page 823. And um, yeah, I would really invite you to grab those Bibles. So just a couple of things. So when, when our time ends, the choir's going to come back and sing. And we're going to take an offering for them um, while they're singing. So just keep that in mind. And uh, there'll be an overhead thing where we write, write our checks out to MNTC and things like that. And then everyone's invited for a meal. And we would like our guests to go first. So keep that in mind as um, the worship service draws to a close. We're going to want them and their families to, to um, enjoy uh, first place. And there's going to be name tags at the table. And we just put our first names. That way we can talk to each other and know who we're talking to. Just one more way to express our Christian unity. All right, well, let's read the Bible. Paul, chapter 1, verse 1 of Galatians. An apostle sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches, not church, but churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the, to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one, deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray together, please. Father, we we first would thank you for our guests, and we'll pray for them. We pray for Brandon. We thank you that the work that you're doing to him will, will be completed. And we pray that his time there will be successful and you will work out your purposes in his life. We also thank you for Alex. And God, we pray for your mercy over him. We pray that, again, he would find you in every lesson and in every room. And the work that you've already started, you'll complete. We pray the same thing for Jesse. And we want him to find a great job soon. The leads, may they good leads, and give him the grace to be a good father. It's hard to be a dad. And so I pray that his relationship with his daughter will be beautiful. And it will continue on until you return or you call them home. And God, I pray that on those days when depression is there, your grace would be sufficient for him. And then we thank you for Josh. 
thinking that the, the Christ that he knew of is now the Christ that he knows. Please, God, have mercy on all the men there. They have, they have hopes. They have ambitions. Some of them have families. We pray that you would equip them with everything they need for doing your will and that you would work in them what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. Now, God, my prayer for our sermon is just like it was this past Wednesday evening because nothing's really changed. That apart from Jesus Christ, I am absolutely nothing. I am less than nothing, and therefore everything of value depends completely on you. So, Father, for Jesus' sake, then please may the Holy Spirit be our teacher, giving us a real rich understanding of your one gospel, and that we would all be converted to it. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The word gospel means good news. And one of the great blessings of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it alone can give a person rest that no one else and nothing else can. And, And his rest is a deep rest, which means we rest from our works, from our striving, from the burden of having to prove our salvation or earn our salvation before God and even before men and women. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, Now we who believed enter that rest. In other words, when a person believes on Christ and his gospel, we rest from our works of the great burden of having to prove or to keep proving ourselves, to earn our salvation, to maintain our salvation. That burden has been lifted from us by God's grace in Jesus Christ. And in the life that we live now, we get some of that deeper rest, but it's going to reach its climax in the new heaven and the new earth. And the Christian, we long for that day, don't we? We, we look for that day. And certainly, when it comes, the fact that it's actually going to come, it is soothing and it is calming especially in those times when we're weary, when we have failed, and when we're afraid. Those times when Satan tempts us to despair and reminds us of the guilt within, some of it which is true. Those times when we flat out have failed, when we have failed to do what God requires, but we were really willing to do what God forbids over and over and over again. Or the problem which Paul was addressing in this letter, which was this. People were saying that there's something else other than faith in Christ which is needed to make a person righteous before God, to make a a person acceptable before God all the time, and to be full of the Holy Spirit. So what is happening here in this letter is Paul, the writer who, if your Bible's open, you'll see this in verse 1, who was sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's going to make the argument that when a person would attempt to mix faith and works, thinking that I also have to add this thing or that thing, or I'm not really a Christian, and I'm not saved, and I cannot enter this rest, that when you say that, what you're really saying is that what really makes the difference, what, what really puts you over the top, as it were, is not what Christ alone has done, but what you add. 
which makes you your own Savior at worst or a co-Savior with Jesus at best. And that is not the gospel. But then, like now, everyone is not convinced of this. And as was said, such was the case in these Galatian churches. We have three points. The first one was the longest, so don't be terrified if it takes too long. So apparently, there were people in the churches, and by the way, you can track with us in the back of the worship folder there. There were people in the churches who were not convinced of faith alone in Jesus. And, and there were clear symptoms in the church And by the way, there's always going to be clear symptoms. And so maybe you're here this morning and you have some of these symptoms. Here's four. One, the joy of the church was lost. Chapter 4, verse 15, Paul asked them, what has happened to all your joy? In other words, when a person relates to God and relates to others based on their own works or or the works of others and not the finished work of Jesus Christ, Not only will they be delusional, they will be miserable. They will be miserable. Why? Because people will fail us. And people can be so judgmental. That's the first thing. Second thing, Christian unity based on Christ alone was being infected. And these false teachers, work-based plus Jesus theology, was was simply because they wanted personal honor and loyalty to themselves. How do I know that? Chapter 4, verse 17. This is what Paul writes. What they want is to alienate you from us so you would be zealous for them. Chapter 6, verse 12. They want to make a good impression outwardly. In other words, they they like the applause, all right? So they would add something to the gospel, some kind of work, and they did it so people would be devoted to them and not Christ. And that breaks Christian unity. Remember Shakespeare, Richard II? My honor is my life. Both grow in one. Take honor from me, and my life is done. That was these bad people in the church. They lived, they thirsted for applause, for recognition. They wanted to be the kind of people that would give the impression that, wow, we really got it going on with Jesus for themselves. Three, alienation from Jesus Christ as well. Chapter chapter 5, verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by law, by works, have been alienated from Christ. I mean, it's, it's almost crazy, but it's true. Some kind of external religious work being done, which is probably on one level good, but if it's used as a means to improve or to create or rest in as the basis of your acceptance with God, it would alienate a person from Jesus Christ. Now think about that. Good deeds alienating you from Jesus. So so like when Sister Susie takes everybody cookies and the cookies are really good. But Sister Susie is doing it only to boost her standing with with God. She is alienating herself from Christ. And that is offensive to Jesus. Four, the the avoidance of persecution, which is a fundamental part of authentic gospel ministry. In other words, the added works plus Jesus was done so they could avoid persecution. Chapter 5, verse 11. Brothers, if I am still preaching uh, the old covenant, why, I, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. That was the effect 
of a works plus gospel in the church. No joy. Alienation in the church. Unity infected because it was work-based unity and not grace-based unity in Christ. Loyalties were inverted. The church is played like a local theater. And the scandal of the gospel was being avoided. And therefore, the greatest theologian ever, Paul, sent by Jesus Christ, is engaged in nothing less than a battle for the gospel. Freedom and truth are at stake. The honor of Christ's name and what he did at Calvary is at stake, and those things are not negotiable. And so here, in one of Paul's earliest letters, written about 15 years after the crucifixion and resurrection, so this would be like 48, 50 AD, so things are fresh, He's writing to get to the very root of Christian identity and Christian unity, making the case that both our identity and our unity is rooted only in Jesus Christ. So as you read through the letter, it's raw, it's intense. It attacks human pride at its worst. Uh, This is a religious um, hubris, right? There can be no heroes in the church other than Jesus Christ. God's people. And Christ's honor is at stake. Our destiny is at stake. To quote David Turner, who was quoting John Piper, Galatians is one of the most explosive, hard-hitting, controversial, liberating, grace-saturated, salvation-clarifying, Christ-exalting, gospel-advancing, Bible-defending book in all the Scripture. It's a mouthful, isn't it? And if you know Christian history, this book and this text shaped the Protestant movement. Luther would call this text his Catherine. Catherine was his wife. He would say he was married to this book. So Paul's making one of his strongest arguments that a person can be right with God forever, can enjoy his love, and kind of swim in his promises and escape his judgment only, only by faith in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness is gained through law, obedience, works, Christ died for nothing. That's the gospel. God's good for our evil. And we still need to know that daily, don't we? As this book can put steel in a person's spine. We are saved entirely, confidently, and completely by grace alone, through faith, and not by our own works. Because it's easy for our faith to become about who we are and what we do, or what other people are doing, or what other people are not doing. You know, it's pretty easy, right? The, the good Christians have more, and the bad Christians have less. And as I was thinking about this, it's so appealing to me personally, and frankly, this is so out of the ordinary, that Paul, when he writes to these churches, which those churches existed in the context of an X-rated, morally filthy, first century world, which would make our culture blush, I mean, it was terrible there. Read a history book. So, what I'd like us to see, that this letter, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, places a higher concern for gospel authenticity than the moral decay in that society. That's important. Paul has more concern here for the gospel authenticity than the moral decay in that society. So God turns the whole thing upside down, doesn't he? I mean, I can hear somebody now responding to this letter. Let's say this letter just came fresh from God, 2019. And you read this, and I can hear somebody saying, Hey, Paul, all that gospel stuff is really fine. But really, have you looked out there? I mean, we've got to change the culture. What's wrong with it? How to improve it? Write about how to do that, Paul. 
Don't you care, Paul? But again, this letter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, places a higher concern for gospel authenticity than the moral decay into society, not because God doesn't care about the latter, but because the world's only hope is in the former. Now, Paul, who founded these local churches in Galatia, verse 2, by the way, that's in southern Turkey. This is his first missionary journey with Barnabas. You can read about that in Acts 13 and 14. The converts had largely been Gentiles, non-Jews, and it didn't take long for trouble to arise. The Jews which were there thought that they kind of had seniority with God, that they knew more about God, and so they'd been at this God thing for a long, long time. And so the strong-arm tactic which came from a group, we'll call them the Judaizers, in the churches who gave another gospel, their tactics came in two fronts. It's very common. It's usually the same. First, Paul, you're not a true apostle. And second, the Jesus you preach isn't a big enough savior, right? Paul, you're not good enough, and your Jesus, he's not strong enough. Pretty human. They were saying Paul hasn't gone far enough in the gospel, that he left some things out, such as circumcision, or those special diets, or special days, or special disciplines, or special religious experience. If you're going to go to be a child of God, that faith in Christ was a great starting place, but it wasn't enough. There's more. There's lots more. I mean, it's not so different than now. The gospel and, as in the gospel, and you need to add this to it. Or the gospel but, and some people have a lot of buts, big buts. As in the gospel is good, but if you don't add this to it, you'll never walk in victory. You'll never have fullness. And in history, or just paying attention to how Christian people speak, thinking as times move on that we've discovered, you know, some new formula to add or to help the gospel along, which our forefathers in previous generations would just scratch their head out. I mean, social gospel, self-improvement gospel, self-fulfillment gospel, spirit world gospel, financial freedom gospel, go hide out in some Christian villa gospel, cultural war gospels. And we can't be too hard on them because even as you think about it, you understand justification by faith alone in Christ, that can be really, really dangerous. Can it? The, the, The tension of our sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, the, the sin, not the part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more, that can be impinged on, on the fact that I just sinned, that I have hate in my heart right now for my brother and sister in Christ, that you want to talk about lazy, and you want to talk about lust, and you want to talk about gossip, and you want to talk about slander, you want to talk about what I just did last night again, and I'm so greedy, And I'm so sorry, God, how long can I keep being that way? And you're going to still love me, and I'm still going to belong to your family. However, the gospel is good news. The church, the truth in the church is at stake in that good news. That's the context. Second, the question, which is driving this letter, was it necessary for Gentiles to become Jews first in order to become real Christians? In other words, What did it really take to become a Christian? And can it really be true? This sounds too good to be true. Can it really be true that faith alone in Jesus and in all that his death achieved, is that enough? Really? Which again, that's the question at the heart of this letter, and it's still a question to which our answer depends on, doesn't it? Our destiny, excuse me, depends on. How we answer that question will depend 
our destiny will depend on. So the names and places have changed, but it's always been a problem in the church. People in the church queuing up to rob us of God's grace and God's freedom. People, chapter 1, verse 10, who apparently want to be pleased when we should know that it's impossible to please people. My God, don't we know that? Maybe, maybe one of the great downfalls of the modern church is we replace phrases like, oh God, have mercy on me. And oh God, thank you for the mercy that you showed to me. We've replaced those phrases with, oh, that offends me. That upsets me. Because we have decided that everything which pleases Jesus Christ must be filtered through what pleases us. That was these Judaizers. Listen to what Luther said. Here's my definition of a Christian. A Christian is a person whose mouth has been shut. You understand that? Chapter 6, verse 12, may I never boast. May my mouth keep shut about everything. May I never boast except in the cross of Christ. Context, miserable. The question, big. What does it take to become a Christian? Final point, answer. The first thing that Paul does, verse 1, he exerts his authority. Verse 1, Paul, apostle. That's how it reads in the Greek. So the bluntness is obvious. I am an apostle. Not from a man or a mere man. I didn't apply for this job. I was taken out of my old life by God's grace in Jesus, and I was made an apostle. Because some people were thinking, you could, Paul, maybe, maybe you're making Christianity a bit too easy, Paul, by just believing in Jesus. Like, come on, Paul, you, 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 just, you just want to please the crowd, don't you? It's too easy. Maybe you put your own spin on the gospel, Paul. Hey, Paul, here's the big one. Hey, Paul, maybe you're hiding some secret sin that nobody knows about. You know what Paul says? 1 Timothy 1.15, let's just see it out of the way. I'm the worst sinner that's ever been on this planet. Right? I am the worst sinner. Paul had seen the risen Christ. No Judaizer from Galatia could say that. He was told the gospel in person by the risen Christ. They could not say that. Which means when you're reading Galatians, you're hearing the voice of Christ. And in time, his life would be taken from him because of his devotion to Christ. That's the first thing he does, his authority. And loved ones, how many problems we meet in today's church have to do with setting aside confidence in what is called apostolic authority, New Testament authority. Because authority in the church does not ultimately come from any human being or group of human beings. Rather, it is enshrined in the apostolic writings of the New Testament. The New Testament is the living word of Christ to the church. How do I know that? Ephesians 2. The the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Jesus Christ as its chief cornerstone. Therefore, when we submit to Galatians, we submit to Christ. And one of the things that Galatians teaches is that the freest people of all are not people who can do whatever they want, whenever they want. No, the freest people of all are still those who submit most fully to the authority of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. Because we meet Jesus Christ fully and clearly and accurately in life-changing encounters when the Bible is opened up. Authority, that's the first one. Also, solidarity. See that verse 2? 
He wasn't a long ranger in his gospel. He affirms, verse 2, and all the brothers with me. So the other people who believe this gospel, in fact, chapter 2, verse 7, Peter, James, John, they're on board with the gospel that Paul preaches. Finally, okay, so there's authority and there's solidarity. Finally, clarity. Do you see that in verse 3? It's beautiful that it's a prayer. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. In the Greek, it's a finished work. It's done. Both are done. According to the will of God the Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And by the way, this is probably the earliest written statement in the New Testament of what the death of Jesus Christ actually means. And what it says, as you look down, what it says is what we need and what God supplies is a rescue and certainly not any kind of religion. So think about your Old Testament, Ezekiel 16.6. God was telling his people how much he loved them and how he rescued them. And there's this beautiful line, as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. That's grace. That's me. When you lay there, Joe, you were dead in your sins. And I said to you, live. And it was costly. Verse 4, God gave his son. Speaking of the cross, he gave himself for our sins. He came to rescue us from this evil age, which implies something about the human condition. Because you don't rescue people unless they're lost and helpless. We are both lost and helpless apart from Jesus Christ alone and alone. And unless we know the depth of our sin, what I just said will be like nothing to you. And sin will be like, oops. And not, oh no, not again. You understand the difference? Oops. And not, oh no, not again. God planned what we did not think we needed. Substituting our sin for his righteousness and it's irreversible. It's done. It's finished. And if I'm trusted in Christ alone, it is amazing. He's done it all for us. Summed up in the words, verse 3, grace and peace. Because you cannot have one without the other. And you can only have both grace and peace in Christ. So the big question, are you in this? Are you in Christ? I mean, as you think this through, only a person's pride would keep us from this. Only a person's pride would try to add something to that. You see, if you want religion in three words, they might be get to work. Very American. Get to work. If you want Christianity in three words, it might be John chapter 19, verse 30. It is finished. So this is much more than than facts to believe in. This isn't a live faith which is tied to a person. If you like, and this is so important. Paul was devoted to a person, Jesus Christ. He was not devoted to a cause. Do you understand the difference? You can be a very conservative person. You can be a very liberal person. You can be a very moral person, and you're just devoted to some cause, right? Morality, purity, transformation of whatever. You can be that way and not be a Christian. So Paul was not devoted to a cause. He was devoted to a person. Listen to what this person did for Paul. Jesus Christ died his death. Jesus Christ gave Paul his righteousness. Jesus Christ made Paul perfect in him. Jesus Christ gave Paul his apostolic ministry. Jesus Christ forgave Paul his sins. Jesus Christ actuated all of the promises of God for Paul in Christ. 
Jesus Christ provides for Paul, provided for Paul daily in perfect measure, and Jesus Christ loved Paul daily. So why wouldn't Paul's whole life revolve around Christ and not some cause? And it's the same change that Jesus does in every person. Even if it's a weak Christian like me who has to keep crawling back to the cross for forgiveness on a daily basis. There was a second person, I think it was Justin, who said, I learned what repentance means. And you said, repentance is daily. Amen. 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 And that's why Paul says, verse 6, do you see it there? I'm astonished that you would chuck this one gospel. Why are you, verse 6, turning away from the one who called you? Are you actually going to walk away from grace? That's what he's saying. Really? This is Sinclair Ferguson. To abandon gospel theology is to desert Christ personally. Are you really going to walk away from grace? Who do you think you are? We need to stop because we need to eat. One, maybe two illustrations and we're done. Maybe they'll help, maybe they won't. Jimmy makes cabinets. Johnny asked Jimmy to make him a cabinet because Jimmy was an expert cabinet maker. Now Jimmy and Johnny were good friends, so Jimmy said, I'm going to make, I'm going to make him the perfect cabinet. cabinet. So he worked very, very hard, and the cabinet is perfect. Jimmy brought the cabinet to Johnny. Johnny looked at it. He grabbed some sandpaper and said, let me just add one little stroke. But Jimmy reached for his hand and said, no, it is finished. It's perfect. And there's no way to add to it without subtracting from it. And it's the exact same thing with Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Because when he died, he said, it is finished. There's nothing else to add to it. It is perfect. And if you add to it, then you subtract from it. Therefore, if, if you say, well, he did this, but I need to do this, or I need to keep doing this, then what you add becomes part of or the real basis of your salvation, making you, again, either your own savior or maybe even worse, co-savior with Jesus. So Paul makes his strong argument in this New Testament letter. He uses the Old Testament as well that says you can't mix faith and works That justification and righteousness must be through faith alone in Christ. And I want to remind you what I have to say to you right now, next, that I have to give an account for. Okay, so if this is theater, God will know it. I need that truth to be true every day. I need the gospel to be true every day. There was a man a long time ago, Thomas Bolson, who said this, If men knew what was in my heart, I wouldn't have four friends left in Scotland. It's true. If our sense of security with God is based on anything that you do, then may I say that you are toast. I wouldn't have any hope nor have any idea of how much fruit I need to show that I'm a Jesus guy. Unless I could crawl out of my bed every day morning on the bedrock knowledge that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And what is true for me is true for my brothers and sisters. Jesus is my only hope for comfort 
for safety, for growth, for stability, for knowing God. Jesus is my only hope for longevity, eternal life, for ministry, and security. Nothing else. I hope it's the same for all of us. If you see me and you want to talk to me about Jesus, I'd be so happy to do it. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, if you guys would come forward to sing. We're going to take an offering. Be mindful of that, and we will close with a prayer blessing for the meal. But let's just pray now. Father, by your Spirit, open our eyes to see the true depth of our sin in order that we might know the full and marvelous extent of your grace that we've received through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Please give us merciful hearts to extend to others the same forgiveness that you daily extend to us. Convince our doubting hearts that this gospel is true and our sorrow and our confession and our joy and in our thanks. And may Jesus Christ be at the center of it all. Freely we have been given. Freely let us extend this truth. For Jesus' sake, amen.